Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I'm interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and this month is no exception. Stay tuned for Dr. Jeff Bland talking about the history of functional medicine. Our podcast sponsor this month is Dr. H. Rejoint. Uh, many of you know Dr. Robert Hadaya. In fact, I just interviewed him if you want to hear a great uh, podcast on functional psychiatry. And he's a longtime functional medicine doc, uh, really a pioneer in our field. He formulated Dr. H. Rejoint, which is an herbal muscle and joint supplement. It normalizes the molecular function of tumor necrosis factor alpha and NF-kappa B, the so-called grand central stations of inflammation. Uh, I can tell you from personal experience and prescribing his product that it actually works. In fact, it works quite nicely. Uh, Dr. Lerman and Dr. Kornberg, both formerly with Metagenics as directors of medicine and medical education, respectively, noted remarkable benefit with this product and called it revolutionary in the management of people with joint and muscle discomfort. For more information about Dr. H. Rejoint and their professional program, you can go to rejointyourself.com. That's R-E-J-O-I-N-T. Y-O-U-R-S-E-L-F dot com and use my discount code, Dr. Kara. That's D-R-K-A-R-A. Thank you. Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Kara Fitzgerald. I'm so happy to be talking to Dr. Jeff Bland today. Uh, many of you know Dr. Bland is the father of functional medicine. I certainly recognize him as such. He co-founded the Institute for Functional Medicine in 1991, and he's been teaching extensively across the globe for the last 35 years, and I have had the honor of learning from him on many occasions. Uh, Dr. Bland's a biochemist by training. He's a fellow at both the American College of Nutrition, uh, where he's a certified nutrition specialist, and the Association for Clinical Biochemistry. Uh, Dr. Bland was the Director of Nutritional Research at the Linus Pauling Institute of Science and Medicine in the early 1980s, working directly with two-time Nobel laureate Dr. Linus Pauling. And I look forward to hearing about uh, that today. And he considers Dr. Pauling to be a lifelong mentor. Dr. Bland has authored several books, uh, most recently The Dele Disease Delusion in uh, 2014. And he's the principal author of over 120 peer-reviewed research papers on nutritional biochemistry and medicine. He's self-published a monthly audio journal, Functional Medicine Update, for more than 30 years. Uh, and that's distributed to health practitioners globally. And I believe Dr. Bland actually is going to be making some of those available to us for, for free. Uh, we've been, I've been listening to them for years, and they're, and they're a wonderful resource. Uh, he, Dr. Bland founded in 2012 Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, PLMI, a nonprofit organization based in Seattle, Washington, where he con continues to serve as the president. He's also president and CEO of Kindex Therapeutics, which researches molecules associated with genetic expression pat uh, patterns in chronic disease. And I will have his contact information, website, number, et cetera, uh, on the podcast page, so you can reach out and access uh, Dr. Bland and see what he's doing over at PLMI. So without further ado, Dr. Bland, Jeff, thank you so much for podcasting with me today. Well, 
Dr. Fitzgerald, it's just uh, an extraordinary treat and privilege to be uh, a part of your remarkable program, and uh, and you are one of my 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 true um, bright stars in this whole field of uh, functional medicine. So it's a real privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, it's just yeah, it's an honor uh, to be to be able to learn from you. And you know, when I when I was thinking about uh, what we could talk about, how we could best use our time. Of course, I want to jump forward, and you've been publishing a lot on uh, where functional medicine is heading, and it's rich, powerful, it's exciting. We're at this wild tipping point, this amazing tipping point in medicine right now, and you're at the forefront of that. But I thought also, I thought, so I want to go there, but I thought, you know, let's go back, um, you know, in our lineage. I mean, this is so near and dear to so many physicians and, and patients, people, this ability to transform to true wellness um, and moving the whole medical model away from the disease model. But anyway, so I wanted to go back in time and just talk about some of the roots of, of functional medicine and your heroes and mentors and so forth. So who are we? Yeah, that's a wonderful place to start. And, um you know, for me, I think I was uh, very fortunate uh, to have been born and moved into the field when I did because I think I was kind of a, a bridging person uh, in between founders of the concepts uh, that underpin this new paradigm in healthcare that you're talking about that we're going to discuss in greater detail. And, uh, and then this new generation of, uh, of researchers and clinicians uh, that are really making it happen, uh, of course, of which you are one of, of that group. And I think I've been kind of this continuity factor that bridges between people like uh, Roger Williams and, and Linus Pauling and uh, even going back to people like, um, well, I guess we want to go to Weston Price and uh, mm. his classic book, uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. Uh, all of these kind of the four founders of our uh, field um, were individuals that, I either uh, had the fortune of meeting or knowing, except for Weston Bryson, who had uh, previously passed away, or were actually, as you mentioned, fortunate enough to even work with them like I did with Minus Falling. So I, I think it, uh, it was a really remarkable opportunity for me uh, with my background in biochemistry to, uh, to kind of be this continuity factor between the founders and, and where we're heading in this uh, incredible age in the 21st century. Did, what did you glean from some of your mentors that, you know, prompted prompted the movement, the development of functional medicine? Can you can you point to some experiences with Dr. Pauling, or um, you know, maybe some books or papers or just concepts that were emerging for you? Well, that's a really uh, insightful question, and uh, I think uh, first of all, I'll say, and then give you some specifics. I think, uh, in general, the thing that I learned from the people that I had the privilege of hanging out with is uh, uh, don't accept the norm uh, as a standard of identity for the future, and uh, that you've got to continually push forward in, in, uh, in understanding and not get too comfortable with what you already know, because it, it probably, in retrospect, will turn out to be uh, fairly naive. And the all the way through my PhD work and certainly into my young uh, life as an assistant professor of chemistry and then later into my uh, work with Linus Pauling uh, and others, 
I had the fortune of meeting people who that was the way that they approached life. Uh, they were they were never comfortable with the status quo, and they they were willing to um, to you know travel a sometimes difficult road of being an outlier. And uh, they recognize mm. the responsibility of being an outlier doesn't necessarily make you, make you right, uh, but it then puts the, the heat on your back of, uh, of finding a way to, to uh, prove your your point and to, to work hard to uh, uh, to convince other people from evidence, not just from conceptualization. So I, I think that was a broad principle. But then we get down to the specifics, and we uh, uh, we get down to things like what is a disease and uh, it was very interesting for me, uh, having spent some time with both Roger Williams and, and quite a bit of time with Lonnie Spalling, in which they viewed disease in a very, a very different way hmm. than I had learned, which was more of a histopathology-based uh, diagnostic-focused uh, approach to understanding sickness. Uh, and so we could put a name to that sickness and call it something. And what I learned from them were these, these names that we put on these conditions are really just manifestations of our lack of uh, complete understanding of the personal uh, disturbances that occur at the physiological level in the individual. And so we kind of group people together in aggregates to make it simpler for us. So we, uh, we have uh, groups like diabetes and groups like heart disease and groups like arthritis, which, uh, in which really each one of those individual people varies uh, different, uh, significantly different uh, in the way that they are actually presenting the disturbances in their own physiology that give rise to those things that we call their disease. And then that, that concept led into then uh, saying, well, how do you actually understand what the differences are then mm -hmm. in the individual versus the aggregate? And uh, fortunately, at, at this time, uh, in the 60s and 70s, new technologies were being developed uh, that allowed analytics uh, for the evaluation of all sorts of things that we knew existed but didn't know how to measure them accurately. I'm talking about uh, various uh, things that we now call metabolomics or, or, right. or proteomics, where we're actually starting to be able to explore the complex milieu of human physiology at the, at the molecular level. And that, uh, that gave rise to the, the whole birthing of a, of a different way of using the clinical laboratory, uh, moving away from just the assessment of a pathology by a variation in a certain indicator, something like a liver enzyme that indicates you have cirrhosis, to starting to look at something that indicates a disturbance in physiology, like, say, cholesterol, which, as we all know, cholesterol in the blood is not really a diagnosis of anything, mm -hmm. but it tells you something about the physiology of the individual in the biosynthesis and, and metabolism of, of cholesterol that then relates to their function. So that, that concept, uh, which was really uh, brought through both by Roger Williams with his concept of biochemical individuality and, uh, and uh, Linus Pauling, obviously, with his concept of orthomolecular medicine, uh, which both played off Archibald Garad's uh, discovery at the turn of the previous century of genetic metabolism diseases, that all gave rise to, to me a whole new aha paradigm as to how people really got sick and how we would really define unique therapeutics based upon that individual's own uh, situation. So that, that, those are probably the driving forces in my, uh, my, my learning uh, early on in my career. Yeah, it's so interesting and powerful. I um, did, as you know, I worked at Metametrics. I had the privilege of doing, um, you know, postdoctorate 
training with Richard Lord and Andy Raleigh, and they were, I think, early adopters of organic acids, um, attempting to identify nutritional insufficiencies. So looking at coenzymes and cofactors uh, rather than just looking at, you know, extremely elevated levels of organic acids. Um, so we know, you know, we know the various enzymes require minerals and vitamins to, to um, catalyze the reaction. And if there's an insufficiency there, we can tweak that reaction. And um, I know that you had a big role in thinking through the utility of using organic acids. Um, and I think it goes back to Roger Williams and biochemical individuality and, and, and Linus Pauling's work. Can you talk about that? Yes, thank you. That, that's a part of the story that I don't think I really um, ever talked much about, so it's a, it's a privilege to have a chance to talk about it. So um, in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, a woman by the name of Bonnie Worthington was um, uh, sponsoring very large meetings in Atlanta on um, complementary, well, it wasn't called that at the time, so I, I think it was more called alternative health care. And uh, these meetings were drawing fairly large audiences, um, a thousand or more people. And I, I was invited to be a, a presenter. And uh, at the second one of her meetings, as I believe, which was probably around 1980, I would say, I had the privilege of meeting this, uh, this, this, these two people, uh, Andy and Carolyn Brawley, uh, he just having finished his PhD. Uh, in, in uh, biochemistry, uh, who were interested in setting up uh, a medical lab, and they wanted to do so around the, the concepts that would focus on this newly emerging uh, field uh, rather than just kind of a traditional pathology-based lab. So Andy and Carolyn and I really um, established a very, very good friendship and, and uh, collegialship, I think, early on. Uh, I became a, a, then a consultant or colleague in the development of their lab. This was actually before uh, uh, Richard Lloyd uh, joined uh, the lab. Uh, Richard, at that point, I think, was an instructor at uh, Life Chiropractic College, if I'm not mistaken, right. in Georgia. And, uh, and we started uh, really looking at the, the methodologies that might help uh, interrogate mm -hmm. some of these unique facets of biochemical individuality. And uh, it was through that that ultimately, um, you might recall that Emory uh, University Medical School there in, in Georgia, in Atlanta, had a, a program in uh, molecular diseases uh, that were associated with mitochondropathies. Mm -hmm. And so we started looking at some of the things that they were doing to analyze in their uh, pediatric patients the, uh, the inborn areas of mitochondrial function and, uh, you know, things like organic acid analysis in started to uh, come out as, as to, uh, maybe a tool right. that if we were to look at it with a little bit finer structure, it could help guide us in understanding where the molecular uniquenesses are in that individual and then uh, what are those that are reducible by uh, modifying these cofactors, as you've, as you've indicated, through looking at metabolic pathways from a, from a functional perspective, not just from a, a bunch of lines and a piece of uh, a textbook in biochemistry. So I think uh, Andy just became, and Carolyn both, great students of this uh, of this field, and and from that, Metametrics was born. Right. So to, sort of like the the precursor to the omics revolution. I mean, it really, or it, you know, it really was. And um, I know that these tools. So looking at um, amino acids and 
um, looking at organic acids. There are, there are certainly much smaller panels than what we're looking at today in systems medicine, but you know, beginning to sort of uh, look under the biochemical, look under the metabolic code of the patient and, and you know, infer, um, infer metabolic activity. Yes, it just seemed so much more sensitive and thrilling and empowering um, looking at oxidative stress markers or, you know, accumulation of different amino acid catabolites, knowing that uh, thiamines required or, um, you know, the tryptophan derivatives like quinolinate and knowing that there's some sort of inflammation happening in the body and um, some of the far-reaching effects of that. I, I use, I still use organic acids in my practice and amino acids and uh, look at the fatty acids and, and continue to sort of as Richard would say, look the, the the dance of the molecules in his mind, and you know, and consider uh, those to be useful guides in treating the patient. Um, and then, of course, now we've got the advent of single nucleotide polymorphisms, which we're sort of marry, marry, marrying to this to this data, and it evolved our understanding a little bit further, and we've gone on from that. Any comments around sort of the emergence of SNPs and the, the movement of, of well, medicine? Well, yeah. <laughs> I think you've done a really marvelous job of kind of summarizing a, a tremendous transition, both in the technology and its application and then the implications of it. So if we think of this period around 1980, um, you know, um, the, the Pauling Institute uh, had been uh, trying to interface um, mass spectrometry uh, in the 60s with um, high pressure uh, or high performance liquid chromatography, HPLC, mm -hmm. to separate out uh, all these molecules that were present in biological fluids, could be urine or could be blood or whatever. And um, all of the concepts that were uh, that we've we've developed over the years were, were really being explored back then. The difficulty is that we didn't have the uh, instrumental uh, technology that we have today uh, to measure a lot of these things uh, sensitively and precisely. And secondly, we didn't have the computer-based uh, uh, power that we have today to handle these large data sets. But certainly, what Pauling was doing, if you go back and read his early papers in the 60s. Um, in the emergence of this orthomolecular medicine concept was was focused directly on on what later became the technology that you're describing and uh, in about 1980s when they started to I think uh, become more robust so we uh, John Pangbord was a big uh, champion right. for uh, organic uh, for amino acid analysis and of course uh, Andy and Richard with uh, organic acid analysis then if you think about it the first uh, real push for uh, Omega-3 fatty acids uh, as being an interesting therapeutic tool was about the same period, about 1980, and we started to see people with uh, HPLC uh, analyzing then uh, fatty acid uh, profiles in individuals. So these tools started to provide a mosaic uh, opportunity for evaluating the metabolomic uh, characteristics of the person. The question is, where did this metabolism come from? And of course, you've already described it came from all these various networks of of interconversion that we call biochemical pathways or networks, but where did those come from? You know, obviously they came from the regulation by various proteins that were uh, regulating the function. The proteins then came from proteins or enzymes, um, and the, those ultimately were derived off the uh, trans translation, transcription of the, of the genes. 
And so we, we started to back ourselves into a more integrated approach toward looking at how function in the individual um, emerges. And then the big wild card, I think, or the, the big, I, I would call it, disruptive concept was the recognition that, lo and behold, um, the environment that the person experiences, their own unique environment, which includes mm -hmm. their diet and their thought patterns, their activity patterns, their exposure to various environmental agents, including radiation, uh, influences how these genes are expressed and then regulates to some extent how these downstream metabolites are produced. So the, uh, you really start looking uh, at a theme that the metabolites are the smoke from the fire that occurred upstream from these expression patterns that occurred uh, when the environment interfaced with an individual's unique uh, uh, genome. And that then ultimately gave rise to the appearance of what we later call health or disease. Yes. So this, this kind of systems theory emerged that really birthed a whole different view of disease from that which uh, most of us grew up with. Uh, right. You know, now suddenly it wasn't just infection or trauma. It was disturbances of this interface between the genes of the individual and their environment for which we then found many of these were correctable if we just knew the right questions to ask, we could provide the right answers. And that from which was born uh, in uh, about oh, 1990 uh, functional medicine. So that, that's kind of how the theme, I think, e emerged to... Uh, uh, to evolve over those uh, 20 or so years. It's just, it's, it's incredible and it's very exciting. So we were moving away from our very limited, you know, histopathological understanding of disease, as you mentioned, and, you know, the drug interventions that are going to stop or block um, in this aggressive way. And I think maybe you must have obviously been seeing the limitations of that all along. Um, and, and I think also, too, a big thing at the time was, or, you know, just forgetting about nutrition as a variable in medicine. I mean, that was largely gone. And, and, and you and, and Dr. Pauling and Dr. Williams and, you know, and, and, you know Andy Brawley, all, all of the folks involved in ushering in this new medicine were completely shifting the paradigm. Um, and, and recognizing the, the power, well, as you said, the powerful influence of indi the individual's environment, their diet, their, the micronutrients, their macronutrients, their lifestyle, the stress response, and then, of course, the impact of, of toxins, you know, not just massive toxic uh, dumps and, you know, these huge occupational exposure, but the perturbation of, of metabolic activity with, you know, what we would consider uh, subclinical toxin exposures or, and, you know, the advent of, of using lots of plastics and, you know, the 80,000 chemicals and, you know, the synergistic effects. I mean, I think, wouldn't, I, wouldn't you say all of this, this, just this exciting, all of this was sort of arising simultaneously in this systems milieu that you guys were really creating and, and birthing? Yeah, I think you said it beautifully. I think it, what we uh, were, what was happening, and, and I don't think we actually fully understood this at the time, but it, it started to be more well recognized, is that we were moving from a kind of a view of healthcare as, as isolated, segmented components. So we, we had all these different medical subspecialties that dealt with individual parts of the body, and they owned that that organic or that organ-specific physio physiology. They had their own nomenclature, they had their own drugs and procedures, mm. and they had their own guilds. 
uh, we moved from that concept of separatism and just and kind of compartmentalization to more and more thinking of the body as a system. And, and of course, another major con contribution to this uh, rising aha, this rising concept, was the recognition of uh, of the, the role that the gut played, yes. and uh, and the fact that the gut was really the immune the seat of the immune system, and the gut was interfacing with this living community of uh, thousands of organisms and, you know, maybe as much as three pounds of living organisms in, in our gut that were communicating with the body, both in friendly ways and not so friendly ways. And, and we were some of the first groups, in fact, I, I think we kind of invented the term leaky gut. It was uh, considered a heretical term when we first right. used it for the first 15 years. We were criticized heavily every time I would speak a medical grand rounds meeting, you know, and I would use that term. I, uh, people would look at Scott or we talk about metabolic endotoxemia, and that was, you know, endotoxemia uh, was just a, a life-threatening condition that happened uh, in emergency room hospital trauma centers. You, you didn't have chronic endotoxemia, but over the years, this also became fairly well documented. Now it's, these are acceptable terms in, in immunology and gastroenterology. So I think that all of this uh, took us into a much more uh, systematic uh, view of human uh, function. And, uh, of course, then emerging more recently is even to recognize the importance that this microbiome has on all sorts of functions through crosstalk with our receptor systems and cellular signaling. And, and so I, I think we went from discrete segmented view of the body and sickness to this unified field theory uh, of understanding of of how the warp and weft of uh, a function is altered by the experience that the person has in their life. It's, it's so incredible, Jeff. It's, it's just it's really great to hear it. It's so big, and, and, and clearly there were many individuals involved, many cogs in this machine, you know, expanding medicine, developing functional medicine. It's very thrilling. And you, I think that you guys... Um, uh, were historians also, you know, going back into the medical literature, looking at the fact that, you know, Mechnikov wrote about lac lactic acid bacteria in the, I think in the 1800s, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, yeah, that's right. He, he won the Nobel, Nobel Prize uh, for in physiology in, 1901, uh, in 1901. So, right. yeah, I, I think it's prolongation of book, uh, prolongation of life book in which he describes uh, instilling um, culture bacteria into the rectum uh, was published in like 1898. It's amazing. So there was, so I think just an appreciation and an open-mindedness and a willingness to jump in and uh, try something out and, 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 and perhaps also too, well, definitely, you know, trusting the body's physiology, uh, recognizing the importance of nutrients. And then since you know, since you guys were happened to be scientists, you know, <laughs> you know, you could develop the analytical uh, know-how to actually measure some of these some of these things that you were talking about, looking at metabolism. And yeah. go ahead. Yeah, and I think we had we 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 had such a great um, synchronicity. Yes. In the in the cooperation of, uh, among these people that were looking at the world from maybe a molecular perspective with some really, really great clinicians who are just very wise, people like Sid Baker, Leo Gallen, right. David Jones. I mean, these were, uh, these were people who were willing to cross the boundary into discussing the science, but were very strong about the primacy and importance of, of making this clinically important and how it would uh, 
it would really value the patient. So I think that the marriage of, of very strong clinical um, news to use with these new tools of how to evaluate and understand the body at a different level really started to accelerate the um, development of this concept that we call functional medicine. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It was just wildly synergistic, all of these components c- coming together and um, creating or birthing this new medicine. So can you, how, how did functional medicine start? Well, what happened was we, uh, we, we were having these, uh, we were all meeting at these various uh, kind of meetings that were being presented by the different academies and the different societies, and we're kind of all doing our own education thing. And then uh, uh, my wife, Susan, actually said to me, uh, this would have been about 1989, she said, you know, uh, Jeff, it seems like it would be really wise uh, to have a conclave where you brought some of these great thought leaders that you've had the privilege of, of working with and knowing together to talk about the what if. Well, what if you were to have a magic wand and to wave it, what would the medicine look like if it was, uh, it was the best you could make it? And uh, mm. wouldn't that be fun to have that kind of a discussion? And so we actually sponsored, uh, thanks to her advocacy, uh, two meetings in 1989 and 1990, I think it was, uh, which were in Victoria, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island. And uh, we, we brought people in, and Annie was uh, was one of those people. And uh, there, I think we had about 35 different uh, people, including uh, Wayne Matson from MIT, who was a systems uh, biologist and uh, analytical chemist and was, was very good in understanding some of the new stochastic modeling that was being done with informatics that would take us into new things of dendritic analysis and cluster analysis and complex data set analysis. And so we, we sat down, actually, for, uh, for three days in, in Victoria to just discuss in a whiteboard what, uh, what might be the ideal way of looking at health and, and, and the emergence of medicine. And then we followed that on with a second meeting in, in, uh, 19, uh, in 1990. And it was at that second meeting that I, I had uh, this, this vision that really what we were talking about is function. And even mm-hmm. though function in medicine had kind of a pejorative terminology that was related to psychosomatic illness or geriatric uh, dysfunction, mm-hmm. um, I, I thought maybe given what's going on in the literature at that time, which was uh, redefining function with functional radiology, functional cardiology, functional endocrinology, that maybe uh, that was a good term if we were to uh, look to the future. So I proposed uh, in 1990 that we, uh, we call this uh, maybe functional medicine, and, and out of that then was, was born uh, the, the thought that let's have an institute. So we, you know, the Institute for Functional Medicine was born, and then we had our first meeting uh, in 1991. How did the, you know, the, the, we, we rely so much. I mean, I use in my practice with all of my patients the, the functional medicine matrix. I use the nodes. Um, I think about antecedents, triggers, and mediators. You know, we've since mm-hmm. introduced the timeline. But how did you discuss? How did you? How did you come up with our the, the the final matrix, or how did you develop that? That's just a work of genius. Well, what happened was um, Leo Gallen was really the, uh, the the principal contributor to the patient-centered concept. That was really the. Uh, antecedents, triggers, mediators, signs, and symptoms model. And, uh, you know, we, we give him great attribution for his contribution to functional medicine in, in that formalism. And then uh, as we started to teach, and I think back to it, it's almost hilarious, uh, we, we started our, 
uh, applying functional medicine and clinical practice training programs. And at that point, um, uh, they were being held in Dick Harbor, which is where our offices were in Washington State. And um, there were two uh, sessions uh, of a six-day duration each, if you can imagine people coming in uh, twice for six, uh, six days. But uh, that's the way mm-hmm. we started AF- AFMCP in Dick Harbor. And uh, we would do these breakout sessions uh, kind of uh, in the afternoons and mornings would be uh, lectures at what we now would call the modules uh, in IFM today. Uh, we'd do the, the kind of the lectures in the morning, and then uh, we would have in the afternoon kind of case-based uh, breakout sessions. Uh, there would be about oh, 10 people per session, and, and we'd have these instructors, and David would be one, I'd be one, Bob Lemon would be one, and so forth. And... Uh, and when we got into the clinical applications then of these concepts, uh, we, we more and more started to try to put uh, something together on, the, on, on a piece of paper that could be given out uh, to the individuals who were trying to codify this information when we were doing our case-based learning. And over the course of a couple of years, that, that uh, rough-cut first-level uh, thing that uh, David and I actually did on the back of a napkin, you know how that goes, right. uh, then evolved over time. Uh, to ultimately be more robust, and I, I think David Jones actually was the guy that uh, finally coined the term matrix. You know, this was a time where the matrix movies were really uh, popular, and, and um, so I, I think it was his uh, definition of the as the functional medicine matrix. And it was really after a couple of years of evolution of the way that we were teaching in the AFMCP that that was born. Uh, right, and it's a it's it's an incredibly useful. Uh, tool now to practice, to apply systems medicine, you know, clinically. So, you know, probably around this time, the human genome was mapped, right? Maybe a little little after this time? And um, Yeah, yeah. It, I think that's a really uh, another interesting uh, kind of uh, guidepost. In, in, the, in the emergence and development of functional medicine. If you think of uh, uh, the Human Genome Project um, really starting in the, in the late 90s and uh, with the final announcement, you know, of the deciphering of the, the first book of life in, in the Rose Garden in 2000, um, that we, of course, were uh, the, the, the founders of functional medicine were well aware of the importance that understanding more and more about this double helix and the information contained within it, uh, how important it was going to be in, uh, in us understanding the aspects of, uh, of dysfunction and, uh, and also function. And I, I, I want to emphasize that in our discussions about genome early on, it was, it was more about the regulation of the pluripotentiality of the person uh, than it was about trying to find the genes that were related to disease. I, I think mm-hmm. that, unfortunately, we've, um, we've kind of slipped uh, into, a, into a disease mentality about human genome testing because what everybody wants to know is what genes do they have that are going to cause them to be sick. And, uh, right. and really, the majority of the genome tells a person how they're going to be well in response to their environment. So I, I think that uh, we need to bring this this uh, genomic information back into the context. It, it's not a it's not a roadmap to sickness. It's a roadmap mm-hmm. to function, and function can be the best of function or it can be disturbed function depending upon the environment that the individual uh, is exposed to. 
so I think we recognize that as we got more information coming out of the Human Genome Project, it was going to more and more provide some granularity to our understanding of what Roger Williams with genetotrophic disease or Roger yes. Williams with orthomolecular medicine had been talking about. And uh, our concept was let's make sure we don't jump onto the bandwagon too quickly of saying, oh, boy, now we're going to know the genes that cause disease. Uh, rather, let's examine uh, this genomic story from the perspective, what does it tell us about function? Right, right. Well, and it did seem to me that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there was some sort of disappointment among the, you know, the, the greater medical community that these, this one gene, one disease model was crushed after the genome was mapped, when they realized it was, well, there's far less genes and it's infinitely more complex. Um, and didn't systems medicine sort of, as we understand it today, would you say, I, I mean, you, you were already building it, but you, systems medicine was, there was a great leap forward with these recognitions. Would you say that's true? or? Oh, absolutely. I think what you're saying is right on, on target. That um, If you think of, you know, the, the preconceptions often uh, steer how we see, how we, how we interpret observations. So the preconception in medicine is you're well until proven sick, and, uh, and, and disease is a uh, kind of a binary function. It's like an on-off switch. You're well one moment and you have a heart disease the next moment and that the genes are there like switches to turn on and off your wellness or your disease. And so mm -hmm. if you've got bad genes that get turned on to disease, then you have that problem, then we better find a drug to block whatever that process was that, that got turned on that caused that disease. That, that's all a consistent model until the human genome was deciphered, and we recognized, as you said, that you can't describe the nature of function one gene at a time. Mm -hmm. You have to look at these as systems of interact, interacting inter, inter, uh, interrelated genes and that their different expression in different tissues at different times under different circumstances is what gives rise to overall body function. So what's going on in the hepatocyte is, is different than what's going on in the neuron, even though they share the same genes. And that conceptualization um, that came out of uh, the disillusionment of, oh, my word, we didn't get as much out of this genome project as we thought, was a very naive view of what I consider a revolutionary new concept that we're still learning about, yes. which is disease is much more than just one gene getting turned on or off. Right. It is a complex orchestration of a dance of our unique genetic potential with the environment that those that tissue or organ or cells are being exposed to, that to me opens up many more opportunities because it's much less uh, deterministic and it's much more uh, related to um, altering things that we can do each right. day to improve our function. It's just, it's so inspiring. I think functional medicine, I think that, you know, you and, and everybody who was developing the functional medicine model back then, scientists and clinicians and, you know, the Linus Pauling, Roger Williams, and, and the people going back. I mean, it was, there, it must, there, it was a real vindication, I'm, I'm thinking, as this emerged, <laughs> some validation. Yeah, it, it is. If you think of, uh, of uh, Linus Pauling, you know, he had this article in a Science Magazine in 1949 
which was the first uh, article that I'm recalling that used the term molecular medicine, and it was the definition of the uh, genetic mutation that occurs in sickle cell anemia. It's a single amino acid substitution mm-hmm. uh, in the heavy chain of, of hemoglobin. And uh, in that article, if you read it carefully, uh, he he cautions the reader uh, to recognize that uh, it, it's not that this says that all diseases uh, are caused by one mutated uh, gene, but rather that there's this genetic variegation that is rich in its uh, composition that can be everything from what we call a genetic metabolism, inborn error metabolism disease like Tay-Sachs-Wilson's Gausser's or uh, uh, phenylketonuria to much more variant forms of uh, modification of the way the genes are functioning that gives rise to mild um, and less acute forms of illness that are, that are modifiable by changing the environment. And, yes. I mean, phenylketonuria is probably a good example of that, isn't right. it? Because you've got some cases where it's very extreme. These, uh, these children uh, develop very serious retardation developmental abnormalities early on. And then there are other children that have very mild forms of phenylketonuria, which just modifying the diet by lowering the phenylalanine content of the diet mm-hmm. can, uh, can preserve their function very, very nicely. So I think this whole model was starting to really emerge out of the 1949 paper on sickle cell anemia, but it really took the Human Genome Project to really set it free. Right, right. And then we also, I, I guess I want to kind of move you know, sort of flash forward to to present, and you know the Institute for Systems Biology and the and the uh, exploding um, pool of of data that we're now collecting and moving away from the double blind placebo controlled trial, and you know really attempting to uh, measure and you know observe and measure and see what's happening in real time, you know, the genes, the proteomics, metabolomics, et cetera, things in action, um, the environment, um, the epigenome, et cetera. And all of, it's just, it's, it's an it's a incredible leap forward and one that I feel I'm, you know, just, I'm paying attention to, um, but we're just touching upon it. Um, well, I, I think there is really... The exciting, it's like uh, if you're a skydiver right before you jump out of the plane um, (laughs) and you hope you you got your parachute packed correctly because if you think of the genome uh, and, and say, in comparative genetics, how does the human genome differ from that of other plants and animals? It's not so much that it differs in the number of genes. In fact, we Mm -hmm. have far fewer genes uh, that code for protein in the human genome than uh, than a Pinot Grape has right. in, uh, in its right. you know, um, But it's the recognition now that only 2% of the human genome are uh, related to genes that code for proteins. That means 98% is what used to be called junk DNA. And I, I feel fairly good about this because early on, and I'm, I'm talking about going back into the 1980s and 90s, I was very vehement about the use of junk DNA. And I said, you know, I think we need to be very cautious mm-hmm. to talk, call this junk until we really know what's going on. And um, <clears throat> by the way, I wasn't the only one saying this. There are many others that were as well. But now we recognize that the major difference that, uh, that um, 
constitutes the change between the human genome and all other plants and animals is in this, this uh, what used to be called junk DNA, which are the regulatory reasons that, uh, that actually control how genes are expressed mm -hmm. through things like epigenetics and, and things like uh, small in, uh, inhibitory RNAs and, and uh, various factors that are actually regulating uh, the gene expression patterns as families that really creates our function. And uh, I think that as we now are gaining the tools to start looking at this, what is called the genome's dark matter, uh, we, we really are starting to recognize that that what used to be called junk DNA is actually to a great extent the uh, antennae that are out there receiving information from the outside environment to then translate that to the genome or to the uh, coding portions of the genes as that what one should be turned in and what cells and how we should function. And so epigenetics is now right. seeing to play much more of an important role because it's regulated to a great extent in the dark matter of, of the genome, this so-called uh, junk DNA. And the cell replication and uh, through um, uh, ribosomal RNA is part of the, uh, the junk DNA. And, and so I think there's all sorts of revelations now that this simplistic model that we had, that we had this triplet, triplet code that was going to code for these 20-plus amino acids that would give rise to the sequence of uh, various enzymes that regulate the human function, and it was all going to be worked out just on that kind of uh, a very simplistic model. We now have this much more robust model in which it is seen that the most significant factors that shape us, our phenotype, our health and disease patterns, are the interface of the, the dark matter of our genome with our lifestyles and our environment. Now, there is a huge paradigm shift. <laughs> it's incredible. It's so exciting. And I think, you know, in tandem, or, or part of that, you know, is the emergence, again, a leap forward of analytical tools to be able to assess, you know, the high-throughput technology, being able to look, look at, you know, the, the proteome and the metabolome and um, the impact of the epigenome. And we're, we're, we're starting to see those things. And I know... Uh, you know, clinically, they're not. So, these are still in the research setting, but we're really starting to blast forth in what we're able to see. You know, and 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 that's awakening these awarenesses. Um, and concurrently, I think. Oh, and actually, in, in addition to that, and then we're we're also having these. The you know the emergence of all these these new tools, these new systems tools to analyze this massive data. <laughs> um, that's right. And that's begin. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's just a t it's such an exciting time to be part of this river or this ocean. Well, and and if you look just what's happened within the past uh, two years. So we started off uh, first with the uh, with ISB, Institute for Systems Biology, kind of jumping ahead and starting the, the Pioneer 100 program, which uh, I discussed in my presentation at the uh, AIT meeting for IFM, of which I was a participant, which was this um, measuring lots of stuff on people, uh, both from a genomic and proteomic and metabolomic perspective over the course of a year, and then instructing people based on their data mm -hmm. as to how to make modifications in certain factors of their diet or lifestyle. <clears throat> that would uh, tune up their physiology. Uh, so that was uh, that was part of a bigger program that ISB wants to do, which is uh, uh, the program to get um, 10,000 people. This is the Framingham of the 21st Century project yes. that Lee Hood is advocating. Well, then from the, from that, now we see Human uh, Longevity Institute, which is Craig Venta's company. You know, Craig right. was one of the uh, 
to pioneers of the Human Genome Project with uh, with Solera. So now we have his company uh, doing their um, their approach towards assembling. I think he wants to have uh, 10,000 human genomes uh, catalogs over the next two years. 10,000. Think of that. When we yeah. just a few years ago to get one human genome done was a billion-dollar enterprise. Right. And uh, and then we hear just last week uh, an approval at NIH of this uh, collaborative project in New York uh, City to follow 10,000 people for 20 years with complete data set analysis of uh, their lifestyle, their diet, uh, uh, their genomics, their proteomics, their metabolomics, and to run the serial uh, database. And then we have what's going on uh, with uh, um, Eric Schott and his group and Stephen Friend, uh, which is called the Resilience Project, in which they're um, measuring all these things on the genomes of individuals who have had family histories of very serious disease, but they've lived into their 80s and 90s completely free of disease. And so they're asking the question, what in their genomes, because they have these genes for disease that are inherited, why didn't they ever get expressed? Mm -hmm. Why are they silenced? So if you look at how all this is happening in real time, it is, yes. it is creating a groundswell that, you know, you either get on the bus or you get run over because right. it is really a transforming period. Yes, it is true. And, you know, it is. I, and I, I want to circle back and anchor this in the clinical um, because I do think it's important, you know, and, and, it's, and David Jones has been, you know, really instrumental in, 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 in my life, mentoring me, you know, in thinking about myself as a clinician and practice. But anyway, so, it, so concurrently, as we, as, we, as we catapult forward in the, in the investigation, we're also catapulting forward with the practice of medicine and having the Cleveland Clinic open um, an institute, you know, the, the functional medicine center there, and um, just the explosion of functional medicine and new clinicians finding it and coming in and patients getting better and asking for it. So really, along with this, uh, the, 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 the genomic revolution, there is an equally vital and powerful clinical um, transition happening. Yeah, I, I think you've, you've said it. This, this information is only as good as its ability to help people um, reduce the suffering of dysfunction, right, mm -hmm. a disease. And, uh, and so it has to be sifted through uh, clinicians that really know how to use the tools. I mean, tools are only as good as their ability to be used. So I, I, I think the Institute for Functional Medicine is, has really done a very uh, meritorious uh, job in being, uh, I hope, at the leading and not the bleeding edge, of, uh, of getting these tools starting to be brought into uh, the practice of healthcare, even though we don't know all the answers yet. And, right. and the question is, when you're early on in the scheme, what's, what's too early and what's just at the right level of early? <laughs> and I, I think this is always a complicated question because uh, there, there's always an interest in bringing everything new in because you want to be at the front of the pack. But you have to be a little cautious not to bring too much that's new that hasn't uh, hasn't been properly vetted, and you don't know exactly what you're what, what, what you're really dealing with. And so later, you you know, uh, having to say, "Well, I, I made a mistake. I didn't I didn't fully understand what was going on." So I, I think that uh, IFM is doing a very good job of um, really proctoring and and uh, evaluating how this information is to be interfaced into the clinical perspective, and to really 
train docs about how to think in a systems way. If I was to really ask what's the most important singular takeaway from the Institute for Functional Medicine curriculum, I mean, there's a lot of good tools and a lot of good news to use, but it's principally how to move our minds away from thinking of things as binary, as true-false, yes-no, multiple choice, disease or no disease, into a systems way of evaluating into organ communication, whole body, network, biology. Yes. And, and that thinking, which is inherent in every human being, has been kind of trained out of us by the way our educational systems worked, which was to strive for this kind of digital answer to yes. a question and, and recitation by memorization. And I, I think that uh, it, it's, a, it's exciting when you open up this, this uh, uh, dormant power that we all have to create understanding of uh, connection and uh, and to you know, the human mind is probably better than even the most powerful supercomputer in, in seeing patterns. Right. So how we re- reinforce that ability of a person to see patterns. I think that's a really powerful part of the functional medicine curriculum that's connected to systems biology and to network physiology. And the tools that we're using um, in functional medicine are, you know, so much of the time our diet, um, you know, what we're eating, how we're navigating our lives, you know, working with stress response and so forth. I mean, we're using, you know, so on one hand, we're, we're catapulting so forward with technology and so forth, but really there's very grounding interventions that we've been using time immemorial, you know, health, just recognizing the value and the importance of the micronutrients and macronutrients. And um, so I, th- I, th- I think that we embrace first do no harm um, wholly. Well, you know, we, I think we trivialized for so many years um, in medicine these, these concepts saying, well, these are either soft science or they're, 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 they're of low importance in ultimately understanding the origin of disease. And, and I think in the emergency room situation or in crisis care, it may be true that these things um, right. at the moment are, are not the most important issues. But in right. terms of the pattern of emergence of chronic disease, these are the most important things. They watch over our genes 24-7-365. They're, mm-hmm. they're always present. They're omnipresent. And even though they might have low signal strength, over time they're the big movers of change in shaping physiognomy and changing uh, phenomenology of the phenotype. So my, my belief is that what we're witnessing right now is, is a, uh, an understanding at this, this basic science level of how these, what were considered small signal strength uh, perturbations like diet, have enormous effects over long periods of time on function greater than any other thing. And uh, when you start to put that in context and then ask how is that going to shape medical education and how will that shape medical therapeutics, how will that shape medical economics and, and, uh, and the business of medicine, it's going to have an enormous uh, effect on emerging uh, a new um, industry, which is going to be a wellness-based industry that's based on these, uh, these parameters. So it, we, we might have some kind of a balance between a, a disease-based industry and a wellness-based industry as this particular, these concepts evolve to become more well-used and the informatics becomes more uh, capable of picking out these patterns and, and uh, defining uniqueness in the individual. I think that's a wonderful place for us to, uh, to, to just close this, uh, this, this journey that we took this morning. Uh, and I, 
I appreciate you being taking the time with me today to talk about you know who we are, where we came from, and you know a, a, an idea of where we're heading. Thank you so much, Jeff. Well, I, if I could, I'd just like to close with a, a shared experience that you and I just had um, uh, within the last few months, and that was uh, the presentation by Moshe Sev yes. from Miguel on, on behavioral epigenetics. He's, he's credited as being kind of the father of humans and the Mazzini, his colleague of that field. Um, I think that it's, uh, it is so powerful when you start looking uh, at this data that says that the psychosocial environment that animals find themselves, of which we are one of those animals, can put materialistic marks, molecular marks, mm-hmm. methyl, methyl groups, onto our genome as a consequence of the experiences that we have from our observation of our world. Right. Now, if you start thinking about that and you start asking questions about uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, about behavioral abnormalities, about uh, various uh, disorders that now are so uh, so frequent in our society, uh, depression, dysphoria, uh, cognitive dysfunction, where, where might many of these things come from? And what we're starting to see through this, this new science that's emerging is that even, quote, simple things, which are actually not so simple, which are the relationships we have, the uh, joy of living, the sense of attribution, the feeling of purpose, uh, locus control, all of these are variables that modulate at the molecular level how our genes are expressed through this dark matter that yes. constitutes 98% of the human genome. Now, when I put all this together, yes. and you ask, is this a frame of reference of this minor change or significant change in the way that medicine will be practiced in the future? Right. I think, you know, it's, it's inevitable that these are huge disruptive uh, technologies and discoveries that are going to change healthcare for the better. So extraordinary. Yes, yeah, so extraordinary. And the PLMI... Um, website will be up on, on with this podcast, and people can access Dr. Steve's lecture and all the entire conference. Uh, and I do recommend uh, listening to them because it, it, it was an amazing conference that we had uh, in October. And I'm so glad that I went, and I will certainly be there next year. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think many of those, uh, those videos of the, of the lectures, which are now free of charge on the PLMI website, you'll, people will find very interesting. I think there were several that were were just mind-blowing. The one on stem cell physiology. From, oh, yes. Uh, the work, just, uh, just, you know, you, you can see a little bit of, you get a little glimpse as to where we're heading uh, by the application of this into the new world. It's, it's really amazing. Right. It is. Absolutely. Thanks again, Jeff. It's been great to talk to Thanks, you. Thanks, You're doing a great job, and it's such a privilege to have you spark the field. Thank you.